With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. As we see some movement at the takeoff zone, it's Kelly Slater grabbing rail. A clean entry, this thing holding open, it spits. Uh, when it spit me, I thought it was going to spit me off my board. Comes out with the spit, spits him out. Comes out after the spit, gets spat out of another good looking wave here. Spit, spit, spit. We're just spitballing, right? Yeah, I got yeah, guy. Yeah, freaking guy. Welcome, everybody. It is the Spit Podcast. David Lee Scales. I'm Scott Bass. We sit and we spit at each other regarding surf and the surf industry and things that are happening in the world and culture of surf. Good morning, David. Good morning, Scott. Wonderful to see you. Why aren't you smiling, then? You said that with a smirk. Because... Um I don't know. I was just doing a deep... Th- I was thinking about my interaction with Dick Metz right now. Mm. Standing right beside these two doors at yeah. the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center, the founder himself. And I was in a reflective mood. I was feeling um, like I'm in the presence of greatness. But it wasn't because of you. <laughs> Fair enough. I think but, you are. I think Dick Metz is uh, worthy of that. I'd say so, too. It's good to see him whenever he's in town. Yeah. Um, we were just talking about The Office before the mics went on. Yes. You're into The Office. You're a big fan. Yeah. I've never seen a single episode. You're kidding. I, I almost told you before I turned the mics on, but I'm like, no, nah, that's better. It's a better reveal. There's a couple You've of never cultural... seen a single I've never episode. seen a single episode. There's a couple cultural iconic things that somehow slipped by me. I've never seen an ep- or a Star Wars film. Mm-hmm. Never read or seen a Harry Potter or Fast and the Furious. And never seen an episode of The, the Office. Okay. Let's just separate the wheat from the chaff, okay? Because Star Wars, Harry Potter, Fast and the Furious does not hold a, what's the phrase? Candle? A candle to the office. And a wow. couple of things. There's a number of people I'm, right now who are shutting you off. The that's radio. fine. Yeah. They, they, they are clueless, apparently. Now, I'm ecstatic for you. Mm-hmm. Because you get, you're going to love this show. You're going to absolutely fall in love with this show yeah i know you are going to love it it is so great it is so funny it is so engaging that you get to watch i think nine seasons of the office yeah you're gonna binge like nobody's ever binged before that's what i've been thinking all along as as it became popular i kind of realized i need to go back and start from the beginning and i just there were I've never had anybody in my life who like forced me to watch it with them. So I just in the back of my head thought, well, I'll look forward to doing that someday. And that day hasn't come yet. You're about to do a deep dive into the world of Dwight Schrute and beet farming. And it's going to be the most wonderful thing ever. I am telling you, you are you're in heaven. Creed. Dwight beat farming is he he's a beat farmer like in in agricultural or yes. like is that his name as a rapper no no like he's farming he's, beets no, yeah he farms beets um, among other things it's a it's a like shrewd family that's what, that's what their whole deal is they're beet farmers so 
there will be a time in the coming months where I disappear off the radar for like four weeks straight and you can't get a hold of me and I'm not recording any podcasts. Yeah. You know where I will be at that point. Good. You need um, to go there. So shout out to Shaq, obviously, for hosting us. And by the way, Dick Metz came in early today just to open the doors for us. Well, I know Dick, and you know Dick, and believe me, he's up at 4 a.m. So this is not push-ups. This is not early for him. This is he's normal. ready for dinner time right now as yeah. we're like showing up with our coffee. Speaking of dinner time, I'm on this new thing. It's called um, intermittent fast. <laughs> this old thing that you just well, discovered. It's new to me. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Let me tell you about it, everybody. The thing that I started doing October 2018. You've been doing this? Dude, For I stopped, I'd say, a few months ago, but I did it for literally a year and a half. Intermittent fast. Yeah. So tell me, what is your what was your regime? My regime, which became very, very simple yes, to implement. Exactly. Um, I would stop eating by, let's say, 10 o'clock at night. Yes. I, I initially put the boundary of 8. But it ended up getting pushed until 10, and then I wouldn't eat lunch the next day until 2. Okay. So zero food intake. I would have black coffee in the morning, Mm -hmm. and I'd have water. Right. But I had no hunger. Like after, let's say, three or four days, not even a full week, I stopped experiencing uh, craving for breakfast. Yeah. So I'd wake up in the morning, get coffee, go to work, and like when I was doing it at 8 o'clock, the 16-hour... Of fasting that you want to do would come at noon that would be over at noon so at noon i'd go oh green light i could have lunch hmm, still not hungry so i won it and then i'd get hungry by about two and that's when i would have my first intake so i realized if i'm not eating until two i can go ahead and push back my dinner you know schedule until 10 at the latest um but yeah so that that was all that it was and then even at two when i would eat lunch it wasn't as if i was famished and i gorged myself on a massive lunch I'd actually have like a really light lunch, you know, salad or something like that, pretty basic. And then I'd have a pretty sizable dinner. Um, But the benefits of it were I slept better. I had more energy. um, I never lost weight. Like initially my thought, like I've been 15 pounds overweight for let's say five years, (laughs) like in all truth, if I'm being honest. Um, So my initial thought was, oh, okay, I'll also lose weight. The weight loss never really happened, and it's probably because I was taking in the same amount of calories just through one massive meal at dinner, and yeah. you know I drink wine and stuff. Um, but then, and I wasn't eliminating sugar, grain, or dairy or anything like that. I just kind of had my regular yeah. meals, but yeah. or my regular food intake, but just all in one meal. Um, so I think that I could have cut weight as well by implementing those other strategies. But I, I mean, 15 pounds, I'm not really stressing about. Um, but the sleeping well and the higher energy was highly important to me. I think what was happening previously was that I was actually eating too much and my body was working hard to process the three meals and maybe larger portions. Um, and that made me have low energy. Hmm. So even though I had breakfast previously, my body was working hard and expending that energy just through processing of the food. That's my own assessment. I've never spoken to a doctor about any of this. Right. I just kind of try to attune to my what my body's telling me. Right. But you tell me about your experience. Well, I don't have quite the experience you've had, but this this thing, what is it called again? Intermittent, Intermittent fast. Basically what it is for me is 16 hours without food and, and eight hours where you can eat. And so... I stop eating at 5 p.m. Holy cow. Yeah. 
And then I can start eating at what? Nine a.m. When do you go to bed? That's proprietary information. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if somewhere I start between eating at five. eight and nine. Oh, okay. So yeah. that's you're stopping eating three hours before you go to bed, basically. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. And it's sixteen hours off, just as you mentioned. Yeah. Eight hours on. You're just. I just eat normally. I might try to kind of curtail some of the breads and stuff. Um, but I just decided to try to just randomly, it wasn't something that just randomly like popped up in my feed or I've, I've been seeing it in my Instagram feed for whatever reason, probably cause I've been, who knows what I've been saying to my microphone, but so it just keeps popping up and I keep being interested in it. And part of it is what you mentioned is that it's very, very simple. Like, it's just like, it's not that hard. It's not hard at all. No. Like you wake up, you drink coffee and before you know it, you're allowed to eat. Like I'm already re- allowed to eat and, yeah, it's and I'm not eating. You know, because we're doing this, but I might have a little bar. But the point is, you're also not hungry, right? No, I'm not starving. And yeah. I'm looking forward to this energy gain. And um, I'm also looking forward to some weight loss. Um, have you noticed a difference in your sleep? Yes, my sleep's way better. Now, I got a full disclosure. I'm three days in, four days in here. But that's when I started seeing the benefits, too. It was yeah. really, really quick. I have noticed. My wife and I have noticed the sleep's way better. So I wonder if that has to do with... Um, not eating right before you go to bed, basically. Like having those three hours, letting your body kind of digest sure and You're... expend that energy doing yeah. the digestion. And not that you would necessarily eat right before bed, but, you know, I'll have dinner and then sit on the sofa Dude. and snack on chocolate or whatever for yeah. right up until bed. Yeah. So it's not a full meal right before bed, but um, this is actually a perfect segue to our longtime sponsor, Need Essentials. Right. Because one thing that I have started doing in... I don't know, the last three months, let's say, is running, which I, I've i run kind of throughout my life, but in the last, let's say, five years, I haven't really been. And so I've been getting back into that routine of daily running. And I was telling you the five pocket like walking short that's made out of board short material is what I wore for two weeks in Hawaii straight, literally wore one pair of shorts and then one pair of board shorts, both from Neat Essentials because they sponsor the show for years. And that five pocket uh, walk short made out of board short material is what I now run in. And it's perfect because I like pockets to have. I like to have my phone to track my runs. But um, if it's a loose pocket, there's jangling this. It's a tight back pocket. So tight back pocket and you zip it. But it also has side pockets still if you need those. The shorts are loose enough to not create friction or anything, but also tight enough to not you know, I've been told we awesome. need to have a moratorium on talk about your junk. <laughs> this was this was conveyed to me by more than one person. Um, there and so they're still listening despite that. Well, we're, we'll see. I'm not even talking about my junk. I'm talking about my shorts right now. I'm saying these are great running shorts that I did not expect. I just had them in the in the rotation because of Hawaii, and now they became my running shorts, and they're perfect. Okay. So neatessentials.com. Love it. I'm a big fan. I'm going on a surf trip. And I'm looking forward to just bringing my Need Essentials board shorts and walking slash board shorts. Those are the ones I'm talking about. Um, the board shorts, do you have the scallop cut or the are they straight across at the bottom? Uh, I, I think they're scallop. I think I might have both. I think, uh, I think okay. Rob might have sent me both. All right. I got to look. You wear, it's winter. You wear the black? That's all I got? Yeah. They I'm going to get an out, upgrade. Rob, send me an upgrade. They this started like, out with all I black. I need a rep, an upgrade. And I'd love it if Neat Essentials made a vest. They're not making vests, are they? Uh, what are you talking about? A, a wetsuit wet vest? vest. Yeah. Not they have the um, the jacket, the yeah. long sleeve. But That's I don't think much. they have a. That's too much. I don't know, for actually, I could look right now. 
Now, I just got back from Indiana and I had the puffer jacket on the whole time. It was 35 degrees and I was laughing at people with my warm hood yeah. that's attached. Yeah. It's killer. Uh, where, where's your surf trip? Can you talk about it? Uh, yeah, I'm going to Monkey's Resort, monkeysresort.com in the Telos Islands off of Sumatra. Premium access to the Tello Islands prime waves, a killer wave right in front, four bungalows, eight total surfers. It's going to be me and seven of my buddies for 12 days, surfing all day, eating like kings, watching Caddyshack on Rewind over and over, massages, and then doing it all again the next day. Picking from random boards to ride. Just It's going to be a surfing smorgasbord at the monkeys resort monkeysresort.com check it out what the heck dude your golf game is gonna suffer if you're out there surfing all day for 12 days what are you gonna do with your other leisure sport Funny you say that i saw on their instagram that there were guys that had like golf clubs there that were swinging golf clubs so maybe there'll be time for some practice but not there's no uh no course they're no, just this swinging is, this is an island in the telos it's it's pretty primitive, except for the luxurious monkeys resort part. What are you gonna ride? How how do you map out a quiver for the trip? What are you gonna bring? And how well, that's go? so funny you say that because um, I'm I think I'm bringing my Ross and I know I'm bringing my Ross and quad, but I'm also looking for one other board. I, I really only want to bring two boards, and the other board I want to bring is is a tri fin, some sort of three fin, and I think it's gonna be. I don't know, 6.2 volumey, but a board that will handle some powerful meaty waves. Um, it's surprising that you would only bring two boards. I only want to bring one board. I really don't want to bring any boards. Like the perfect setup is just show up and there's boards there that you can ride. Like to me, that's, I mean, that's it's, perfect. It's surprising to hear you say that. I know that's perfect philosophically, but everybody who's listening to this knows that you're obsessive about boards and also writing boards that you're comfortable with and refining them for your specific needs. So it's actually shocking to hear you say that you would just show up and trust somebody else's. Well, it's part of the adventure. Remember I told you about going to El Salvador and boards didn't make it. I got on that 5-2 sunset kneeboard fish and just loved it. And so there's something that's, and by the way, as you know, David, I ride a different board, not every day, but I'm riding different boards a lot. So the idea of changing up boards isn't a big deal to me. Like this concept of, oh, I've, I've got to have this one board there because it's the one that I can count on. There's definitely something to that. Part of this is sloth. I just don't want to drag a board bag through the airport. There's something about just not having a board bag that just makes me feel so liberated relative to everyone else that's slogging their crap around. Yep. And part of it is I'm fine with just showing up and riding whatever you know like when we went to the surf ranch there's just boards there you just grab a killer board and it works good and so there's a lot to it but there and there is also truth to the fact that i want to ride a board that i'm comfortable with that i know is going to be a killer board you know so i guess uh, a little bit of everything even, even though you do ride a lot of new boards all the time or different boards every day they're all boards that are designed for you primarily yeah. and that you're like refining some detail on yeah so there is that isn't just happenstance that you're writing no different board every day absolutely it's part of your plan yeah i'm not just blindly picking some board rent yeah everything's like two and five eights in a certain volume and blah yeah. blah blah so what about though um bringing more than one board also another benefit of that is that if you break a board you're not well here's about the thing we're going to monkey surf resort like 
they don't know this, but I know there's boards there. <laughs> there's boards there. There's guys that that are that have investment in the place that leave their boards there. There's the like two Australian surf guides that have boards. There's all my buddies that are going. They don't know this either, but I'm going to pilfer their boards. Like, like if your boards don't show up, do you think you're not surfing? And the answer is no. Of course you're surfing. Somebody's going to give you a board or let you borrow a board. Under, of course, the you know guaranteed assumption that if there's something goes wrong with the board, I'll pay for it. Mm -hmm. So I see. Yeah. You've answered all my questions. I get it now. Yeah. I do agree with you not uh, about not lugging a board bag through airports, especially somewhere like that where it's not just a direct flight. It's, it's this like, is not. There's yeah. a bunch of legs. Bunch of legs, boats, cars, yeah, all of that. All of that. And if you're bringing one board is already a hassle, but if you, somebody's bringing a coffin with like a six board quiver, I roll my eyes. Yeah. I, I, I whenever I see that, I go rookie. Yeah. That's rookie. Right. You only because here's the thing, I've been that guy numerous oh, times. Oh yeah. Well, and guess how many boards I wrote out of my six? One. One. Yeah. That's the thing is, uh, it's funny how surfing works. You would Most lay people would see that guy and think that he's the pro. Like, oh, that guy must be super hardcore surfer. Turns out, once you've been around long enough, you realize... One board. The guy carrying nothing. Harken back the to guy the days of Kevin Naughton and Craig Peterson traveling around the world with one single fin, no board back. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> and a ding repair kit. Right. Yeah. So, anyway, I really believe that one board quiver is, I think one board's fine. I mean, plus it's the telos. Let's say it's 10, 10 feet. That would be the biggest it would get, or the biggest I would surf, probably. 10 feet. 8 to 10 feet telos islands. First of all, that's kind of rare to get a swell that big up there. But it can happen, and it, and it does happen. The, the waves there are so groomed and so perfect that you can get by on a 6'2". Like you could definitely, I could definitely catch, unless you're like somewhere like, like Bawa or Asu, which I don't even think that's the Telos. I think that's further up the chain. But anyway, there are some open ocean waves, but for the most part, the waves roll in, wrap in and filter into some killer long reef, you know, where yeah. it's, it's kind of ruler edged, thin. It's not like some meaty right. open ocean Caribbean swell, you know, like yeah. But your Rawson is the board. The Rawson's the board. The, the Rawson will handle it. The Rawson will handle it. Yeah. There's no doubt. Yeah. Um. God, there was such a good. Uh, w. A couple of people posted it, but WSL posted a guy in the Basque country that I had never heard of before taking off on like a on a larger like a mid length gun. Yeah. On a groomed right hander. Yeah. Bottom I saw that. bottom turn into the barrel, come out. That was a moment where I was like, shoot, that board, I don't want to belittle this surfer, but that board did 80% of the work on that wave. Yeah. And bravo for the guy letting the board do the work. But that was a moment where I just, the clean lines, the length of the board, everything about it worked beautifully. Well, that kind you know of brings us, I do, and, it, and I'm, I'm not sure where it is, but I want to say it's Morocco. And it sort of brings me to the next, to my first story, which is the Billy Kemper thing. Yep, I'm down Because I think that that Basque surfer, I don't know, maybe it was in somewhere in France or Spain, but it looked like Morocco, which is just, you know, across the Straits of Gibraltar, probably might as well have been Morocco, but 
Billy Kemper caught waves very similar to the one you're describing. And I know most of us have seen the footage of Billy Kemper just getting absolutely shacked out of his brain on some sequence. Have you seen it? I saw... There's um, one on Facebook. I saw a sequence, but I haven't seen footage of it yet. Okay, there's one mental long wave. I think I might have put it on my Instagram or I saw it on Instagram or I, I saw it on Facebook. But anyway, it's just mind-blowingly deep, perfect, similar to the one you saw where you're like, there's no way that guy makes it. And then he comes out and it's Billy Kemper. And then he does like two massive hacks, sets up down in the flats again with just a stally bottom turn, plants his arm into the wave and just another section just throws over him and he gets ridiculously spit out. Okay, now David's got this up for me. Is this the Basque guy? Yeah. Or is this Billy Kemper? Yeah, it's not. I don't think it's Morocco. Look at the highway in the background. Well, it looks like Morocco. Okay. Yeah. That's what Morocco can be like. The highway can be right there. Okay. Certain spots. But I don't know where that is, but that's kind of what Billy Kemper's wave looks like too. Super long. Yeah. But anyway, sadly, Billy Kemper got hurt during that session during later in the day, right? He, he... Apparently, he took off on a wave. It was super thick. It was late in the day. He might have been tired. Maybe he was hungry. Maybe he wasn't intermittent fasting. Yeah, that's Great what I thought question. of. You know, late in the day, you're like kind of tired. You're just, you're just kind of... When all, things are, all things are going good for you. So you're riding high with pride. Yeah, And you exactly. just start getting a little loose. And Yeah. And um, he caught this mean, meaty one. And he said it bottomed out like he hadn't seen it bottom out. The tide was negative low. And it was a sand bottom point like most of them are in Morocco. And... It gurgled and caught his board, and he just doesn't know what happened. The next thing he knows, he was blacked out. He thinks he, his head might have hit the sand. For sure, his hip was dislocated, or he had some crazy, really bad hip. Uh, pelvic, broken pelvis. Oh. Torn ligaments in his hip and his knee. But yeah, outside rail caught, like you're saying, setting up for the barrel. And the sequence that I saw, the photo sh- sequence, is it's as wide as it is tall. Like, it is a drainer. Yeah. You know? Um and then, so that outside rail catches, he goes over the falls and yeah, just gets basically smashed against the bottom. Or like one fell swoop of boom, hit the bottom, broken pelvis, and then kind of gets sucked over with it. And that's probably where the tears and the ligaments happen. And he got knocked unconscious. So when he came up to the surface, he was really dazed and confused. There happened to be somebody on a ski with a sled so that it wasn't, I don't think they had hired that person, but that person happened to be there. So the sled driver, ski driver comes over to rescue Billy. Billy didn't even have the ability to lift himself onto the sled. So the driver had to like get back, help him onto it. And I guess he was in Morocco for the next five days or whatever, uh, in stable condition and hospitalized but knowing that they wouldn't really be able to treat him until he got back to the U.S., which was two days ago. So wow. they flew him back on like a gurney, Yeah, and he's going to get treatment somewhere here in the U.S. But the the extent that I saw of the injuries was broken pelvis and then torn ligaments. Wow. It's probably worse than that. And by the way, concussion, head trauma, yeah. which is could have the most lasting damage. Yeah, that's nice. So everyone, of course, Billy's such a great guy and um well and he's more equipped to handle this than anybody he's a perennial duke on the show like he's been duke multiple times and he work he cross trains harder than anybody i know currently in this world i mean while i was in hawaii the waves weren't great he was at the gym kahea hearts gym right up the street every single day putting in hours a day doing his thing like he is prepared for worst case scenario and we've seen him by the way in the worst case scenario in ways that waves that were 10 times bigger 
than the one that he ended up getting injured on. So it's there's no amount. I mean, obviously, had he not been in as good condition as he is, who knows what would have happened to him. Um, so it's a good thing that he had all that training, but it just goes to show there's no amount of risk mitigation you could put in place that'll prevent mother nature from humbling you. Yeah. You know, apparently he said that he'd never been hit so hard. Like that was the hardest smackdown he's ever had. Yeah. And when you think, like you say, relative to the jaws situations he's encountered, he must've got smashed pretty good. I wonder too, if it's what you're saying where the jaws scenarios, you're on high alert and you're not going to stay out. If you're too tired, you're not going to ever take your foot off the gas there, you know, Morocco, it doesn't look that treacherous. You just kind of like aren't as alert maybe and as, I don't know. Yeah, it's late in the day. You're, you're like you said, tired, low tide, hungry. You'd never put and yourself. you're confident, overconfident maybe. You'd never put yourself in that situation at Jaws. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got more to discuss with you in relation to this based on other injuries. Did you have more that you wanted to say about no. Billy? Um, well, I guess let's start with when have your worst wipeouts been? It's interesting to me that this is a theme where people's worst wipeouts always are on smaller days. I remember Kelly talking about getting knocked unconscious in Portugal when it was four foot surfing a beach break with Ross Williams. And he got knocked unconscious, came up and was like dazed. And Ross thought he was joking, you know, like, Oh, like he, what and Kelly, that was the worst, most uh, life-threatening experience he had was a four-foot day at a beach break in Portugal when it wasn't even tubing. It was just kind of like whatever. Um, when have your most harrowing experiences been? Um, it was January of '98, or it could have been '97, but it was during an El Nino surf at Salsa Poetas. It was the huge Friday down there. Everyone was down there. It was packed with every California pro surfer. And I had been catching a ton of waves. I was getting good waves. I was getting sick ones. Everyone was. And it got really crowded in the afternoon when the tide went low. And um, I took off on a wave and some guy dropped in on me. And I had to straighten out. And when I straightened out, the lip hit me like right on my shoulder and pulled my shoulder out of its socket. This is like 10 foot salsa plate. It's like mean, like gnarly. If you get pushed inside, it's you're dealing with some boulders. And immediately my arm, my shoulder went back into its socket and I started to paddle. I like got my shit together, got on my board and started to paddle back out because I'm like, oh shit, you know, like I'm getting, I'm about to get hammered. And every time I paddled, my shoulder popped out. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't paddle. Was it painful? A little bit painful, but there was just so much going on that it wasn't like excruciating pain. It was Your more body like, wasn't. It wasn't really that painful. It was just like, it was just weird that my shoulder was popping out every time I moved it. And you just want to get out of the I, I want to go in. I want to get in. Yeah, I'm in danger yeah. now. I'm like, yeah. I can, I've got one arm. I'm paddling with one arm and two guys, three or four, who... Je- um, a couple guys helped me, and it was like um, Jason uh, Bennett from Chemistry Surfboards. He helped me. Jimmy Hogan helped me, and um, a couple of other guys. I wish I could remember their names because they were really. It was really cool that they helped me out. But three or four guys helped me get in, and I got stable and onto the rocks and 
you know, once you're up and high and dry, you're good. But that was probably one of the worst wipeouts. And it was later in the afternoon and I was tired and I'd been surfing a long time. But like I said, some guy dropped in. I had to straighten out. I was about to pull into a tube and this guy just like free fell right on top of me. I had to like straighten out and the whole thing just clipped me. Did that guy ever get a talking to? The f- the it's funny, like two years later or something, there was another situation down there and he was down there. And I think I snapped on him or I said something to him or, and he was just, he was just like, whatever, but you know. He, so you knew who he was. I vaguely, I vaguely remembered who he was. Yeah. I mean, I've, I, I kind of remember saying something to him. But when it happened. I don't know. I still don't know who it was. I don't know who it was. Like right. I couldn't give you a name, but it was some San Diego guy, like probably some La Jolla or Point Loma guy that's like probably thinking I've been surfing South Spoda since I was 10 or whatever, you know, like probably felt like it's my turn to go. I'm going. Plus, it was crowded. You know, it got to a point where it was like overcrowded. Yeah. For how many, you know, like, yeah. And they were all, I mean, it was like a who's who of everybody in San Diego and Orange County from Parsons to, you know, everybody, Hobgoods, you know, Richard Kenvin, a whole slew of underground La Jolla, Point Loma, San Diego guy. It was just everybody. Right. It was just packed. Yeah. But I I got in there at dawn in the morning. I was surfing there. You know, like I, I was on it at like 11 when the tide actually did start to move out and make a difference. And it was starting to do the gurgle thing on the sand there. And me and Nathan Sintas, who's a Point Loma guy, we must have scored. We... Oh, you know who was killing it that day was Dean Randazzo. Oh, gosh. That guy was charging. Kenvin was getting sick ones. I remember I cut Kenvin off on a wave, and not on purpose, but I dropped in on him, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to catch some shit for this. And, <laughs> and I came up, and he was cool. I was like, dude, I'm so sorry. He's like, don't worry about it. Uh, Dean, Dean Randazzo is a name I haven't heard in a long time, and he a was guy who was unbelievably talented. <clears throat> so good. He was killing it. Yeah. I mean, everybody was killing it. Everybody was no, but there's guys that stand out. Like yeah, he you know. he was kind of standing out. Um, well, so that flies in the face of my theory of you always get hurt on the smallest days. <laughs> no, I'm just telling you that's the one wipeout that no, I but remember. It, it's good to hear. That's I mean, I was story. out of the water for four or five months because of it. Oh, really? Yeah, crazy. I had a subluxation, torn labrum. Bummer, dude. Yeah, how's that? Did they treat that down in Baja for Med- you? Medical. I flew to Casablanca, North Africa's finest medical care. From Salsapuedes? Yeah, because, I mean, Billy, if it's good enough for Billy Kemper, it's good enough for me. Poor Billy Kemper is in the Casablanca Hospital just going, please get me out of here. Yeah. Um, hope I don't get coronavirus. Speaking of, this is not injury related, but it's preparation related. Um, when I was in Hawaii two weeks ago, I surfed Sunset. Um, not on a big day, but there's like definitely energy, you know. Yeah. And Wow, that'll that'll show you when you're out of shape. Oh, I mean, it was like one duck dive in. I'll go, oh, dude, I got to tighten up my regime. Like whatever I've been doing in California, thinking like, oh, I can I can surf and like be fit and like no no no. I figured out with one duck dive, and then coming up from that, all that white water, and like seeing the couple of waves on the horizon, just like oh, dude. What was I thinking? Yeah. What was I thinking? Letting fifteen pounds like linger for so long, you know? Yeah. Um. And and drinking a couple cocktails every night for the last week, you know, just yeah. starts to really weigh on you. You might be able to paddle out at Rocky Point, but sunset's yeah. a whole nother beast. Totally. So um, the reason, the couple of other injuries that I did want to discuss was last time that we were recording was during the Nazare event. 
we did not discuss because we had not seen the Alex Botello wipeout. It happened probably during the time that we were actually discussing the show. Or I thought we talked about it. Wasn't we, that the guy? No, that wasn't the we, ski driver. We talked about, yeah, it was. He was with the ski driver. We talked about Ross Clark Jones. You you said, you're like, oh, I saw a heavy wipeout. And I'm like, oh, was that the Ross Clark Jones? He he was injured too. Apparently I was wrong. Ross Clark Jones got injured on Survivor. <laughs> <laughs> you're kidding. He's on Survivor? What, like the Australian He was on version? Australian Survivor, yeah. yeah. And I think he like bust something, broke a leg maybe even, but he... He was like recovering from that injury and he did do the Nazare event, but like didn't really push it. Yeah. So he was injured during the event, but it wasn't what you had witnessed. What you had witnessed was the Alex Patello wipeout, which is now um, old new or two week old news, but worth discussing because the he got knocked unconscious. He was unconscious for six minutes. Wow. Which is crazy. Yeah. And then they rescued him. It was a ski driver injury. Like the ski um, rescued him and was trying to escape the madness on the inside and got launched off of a wave trying to escape, like off of a wedge while they were trying to escape a wave. Went 30 feet in the air. He and the driver both came down, landed on the ski. Gnarly. Hit the hardness of the ski. Then sucked over the falls on the following wave. Oh my God. So they then got rescued, pulled up onto the beach lifeless. And the rescue crews were able to get them into the paramedics. He regained consciousness in the par- in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, but presumably unconscious for six minutes wow. and is going to make a recovery or, you know, he's in stable condition, all that sort of stuff. I actually haven't heard an update on his condition since two or three days after it happened, but Albie Layer um, in the Jaws event this year, got lipped in the head as he was bottom turning, and he suffered mild traumatic brain brain injuries and possible CTE. So he that was two months ago, and he's just now getting back into the water, but he's suffering a lot of the effects of the brain injury. And so that's really what I wanted to discuss with you is like um, Billy Kemper's broken pelvis will heal. Ultimately, whether he'll be at 100% ever, maybe not. But the head trauma is something nobody really knows everything about or even very much about. The best doctors in the world don't know that much about it. And so Stab did an interview with Albie recently, and he said, um, in regards to the effects two months later, he said, quote, one thing broadly is if I do too much in a day, whether that be social interaction or solving problems, at the end of the day, I have headaches. I get really anxious, and at times my thoughts verge on depressive. I also get really irritable, so I'm a nightmare to be around. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. That that shows and so it, it, what's interesting about it is that isn't necessarily I don't know that a doctor would say head injury later you're irritable to the people that you're around. It isn't so uh, corollary you know, or as direct, maybe it's just, or it's not causation, it's more corollary. But Albie's astute enough to know I wasn't irritable four months ago. This is a new behavior. And so I'm glad to see that he's taking tabs on this kind of minutia in his day of things that are bothering him or making him feel depressive that weren't in the past. Because I think that's what ultimately we're going to find out with things like CTE, you know, and maybe mild head trauma as opposed to like really measurable intense concussions and repeated head trauma too that's another thing that we don't we haven't really studied yet is some of these big wave surfers 
maybe they don't have one big incident like Albie just had or like Billy just had. Maybe it's just duck diving repeatedly over, you know, uh, I don't know, five big swells, three big swells a year over the course of 10 years and occasional wipeouts here and there and duck diving here and there has an accumulative effect. Yeah, for sure. Know? And that's scary to think about. So Albie said that he won't be doing events anymore. He's not going to do any big wave events anymore. Yeah. Um, and he goes, I know that I've stated that surfers should just go. Oh, no. This was a, in my own notes, not Albie's thoughts. But you and I have discussed the Piahi event. And part of what I've said is they've got water safety. Just go. We got the green light. Your career's on the line. This is what you're there for. Why wouldn't you just go? Because we see guys cowering or backing off in the women's side of things too. And I'm my thought was always like, dude, if you got the water safety team there, they'll rescue you. You'll be fine. Albie's thoughts make me reassess that and realize that there's actually long-term detriment that you can really suffer. It isn't just a wipeout. It could be your mental acuity with your grandkids when you're 60 that you're compromising when you're 25 yeah but it, i agree with you but still i'm going to say jude just go like you, <laughs> like go for god's sakes you're out there like my point is is that a 25 year old male that's an alpha like all of these guys are they may not know that in 40 years what they've been doing for the last five years might affect their mental health i think if they did know they'd still be like whatever dude it's pumping i'm out there and Call it ignorance, call it bravado, call it just like I'm going to live for the day and whatever. I can't control the future or, you know, however you spin it. I get it. Like you were 25 once. I was 25 once. That's just how young male 25 year olds that have that sort of drive react and act. You know, we're going. We're going to go. I think that's how Midland performers react. I think world class elite athletes have risk mitigation they know they have a calculated analysis kai lenny has a calculated analysis and he's going to risk based on his calculus and information is power and i think what we're realizing now is that we don't have a lot of information about this brain trauma but now we know that this could compromise your well-being into your 60s so maybe you take different calculated risks and what albie was saying was he wouldn't have gone on that wave if it was a free surf but he had hubris yeah. Because the water safety team is there. I don't know. I've eaten it out here before. This one looks compromising, but I'm going to go because of all the safety and like the cameras are on and I'm just going to go. Yeah. And he wouldn't have done it if it was a free surf. He said that. I'm not, yeah. I'm not, that's yeah. not conjecture. But so I think that's what I'm saying is, yeah, you're right. 25 year old is going to make more like rash decisions than a 32 year old, but we now know that there's these other risks to factor in. So use that information to make your new yeah. you know, decisions. You know, there's sort of a good analogy with professional football. So there's these guys, and I'll use this guy, Tyreek Hill, who you probably don't know who he is, but he's this really fast, incredibly small, agile receiver. And there's a lot of guys like him in the NFL that when they catch the ball, and they start running down the field to gain yardage. And a defender's coming at them full force. They'll just run out of bounds rather right. than take the hit for the extra two yards or right. something. They're like, you know what? Not worth it. I'm out of here. Yep. 
And and it's kind of this risk mitigation that you're talking about. They're like, I'm getting out. And that's kind of how I see Kai Lenny. Like, I agree with you. I don't think Kai Lenny takes too many crazy wipeouts. I sense that he's like the receiver that's like, you know what? Bad idea. I'm running out of bounds and I'm going to live for the next day. And I'm going to do this until I'm 50 or whatever. That's a great analogy. Whereas there's guys like, and I'm just, I'm not saying Albie's like this, but there are a lot of guys that are like, you know what? Here comes the defender. I'm a big, strong guy and I've been doing this for a long time. I'm just going to hit the defender as he hits me and I'm going to gain the extra four yards and I'm going to look good doing it. Yeah. You know, so there's those guys that will take on that risk for whatever reason, rather than yeah. mitigate it and run out of bounds to live for another day. That because that's the culture of the sport traditionally is to be bright, braver right. and tougher. But those people have limited careers. What they don't realize is that they're completely replaceable with the next brute coming out of college. Yeah. Kyle Lenny's not replaceable. Like that freakish level of talent. Yeah is unique and he recognizes that so he's preserving it yeah if you're trading on the big brute thing well then that's all you really got you might as well try to hit somebody hard and make a highlight reel yeah because that's all you got right so um another interesting that albie was talking about is he's now surfing with a helmet even on small days oh joining us but i used to surf with a helmet well then maybe you can (laughs) wait maybe you can weigh in on this is he said even the gaff helmets that traditionally surfers have used, that's the brand that people use. Um, they're not that great. Like they're good at protecting your head, but they're not great at, um, you know, hydrodynamic wa- airflow or, uh, uh, but no, it matters. You're shaking your head, but I'm no, not he shaking said, my head. no, he said the reason why that's important is he would have broken his, if he was wearing that helmet at jaws, he would have broken his neck. He goes, that helmet would save my head trauma, but it'll break my neck uh. because it's, it has so much resistance built into it, both in the air and the water. So he's like, we need to design like a more streamlined, non-water logging. You know. Well, low, I saw a new helmet. Weight. I saw a new helmet on the on the market in the marketplace at Surf Expo. Okay. And I was really in- intrigued by it. And it was a soft helmet, like it looked more like something a rugby player would wear, rather than like a hard shelled thing. It wasn't a hard shelled thing. Hmm. And um, I think Tom Carroll is actually one of their ambassadors and i haven't i don't know the name of it off the top of my head but i know i picked a card i talked to the guy i'm like you guys should show at the boardroom show these things are kind of cool so maybe they'll be at the boardroom show but there are some new non-hardshell helmets on uh in the market now so that's maybe helpful maybe not i don't know yeah i thought it was an interesting point that i'll be made i had not heard that before but also we hadn't seen a we've seen guys wearing helmets at jaw or um pipeline but not necessarily jaws and so and Albie, Smith wears a helmet all the time. Yeah. He's a full-time helmet guy. Yeah. Um, can we move on to yep. speaking of girls that aren't going for it? Yep. Um, I don't know if you saw this on Stab, but I'm just going to kind of read from Stab. And this is, again, I'm quoting Stab here. Today, we Stab posted, or really we reposted a video of Caroline Marks expertly threading a deep Tahitian funnel on our Instagram page. Our caption read, To all the naysayers behind their greasy keyboards, sorry, but Carolyn Marks can't see you at WSL. Give the women a run at Chopes already. Not 10 minutes later, an Instagram user by the name of BlacksBSNSN dropped his thoughts in the comments section, presumably typed by his tiny phallus. Quote, Blacks, BSN, SN. This is the smallest chopes I've ever seen. But yeah, let them drop in on a real slab from there and see how they handle it. End quote. 
While the likes slowly compiled on this man's self-serving lecture, an even larger number of commentators started to pick apart the clear faults in this man's logic. Eventually, eventually, us, the venerable stab, that's us, decided to take our own swing at this guy. And this is what we said. Your fake profile with two followers says almost everything we need to know about you. Your inability to recognize the technical brilliance of this tube answers the rest. Be gone, kook. At the time of this writing, the comment has received 1,200 likes compared to 55 on Blacks' original post. But Blacks didn't back down, taunting his opponents with wholly believable claims like, I charge waves triple that, little guy, and stuff like that. That's when our knight in shining scalp arrived. <laughs> Kelly Slater, the 12-time world champion of women's empowerment, provided a comment so perfectly sinister that we had to share it here. And this is what he wrote. Hey, Blacks, BSN, SN, I'll put $5,000 on Caroline against you. Let's do this. Reveal yourself. So Kelly Slater throwing five grand large down. Is that, did I make five large? That's the same thing as five grand. Anyway, Kelly Slater throwing five grand down on Caroline Marks to beat this guy in a surf off. Um, my guess what are you laughing at? I'm not sure where the joke is in this. Well, there's let me like just ten, finish this There's up. ten. Now let's do some quick math. How many people in the world do you think surf better than Carolyn Marks, the number two female surfer in the world? My guess, and the risk, at, and at the risk of sounding misogynistic myself, and again, this is stab talking, is somewhere between 100 and 150. At a long right point, we're talking sub 100. That puts this anonymous commentator's chances of beating Carolyn at approximately 1.875 to 7, which is a number so small that I'm surprised it technically exists. I might have gotten that wrong. At the time of the writing, Black's BSN-SN has not revealed his identity. He presumably keeps that between himself, his two followers, and all the people who've seen him getting kegged at 10-foot chopes. End stab story. So there's a story about a random internet troll. Yes. Who created a fake account to say that. Well, the real story is that Kelly, Kelly stepped up. The real story is that Kelly stepped up to back Carolyn Marks at $5,000 and the guy didn't reveal himself. This is a recurring story where Kelly gets in fights with internet trolls. Yes. About Flat Earth. Exactly. And about. Dude, I was doing some archiving on our own podcast this past week and I saw a story from. It might have been like 2014 that we discussed that was about Kelly uh, like asking for investigation about 9-11. Like Kelly basically <laughs> involved in a conspiracy theory asking for people to investigate 9-11. And I, I started laughing so hard. I'm like, I, I should listen to this. You and I should listen to you and I discussing this or because I forgot completely that he is that guy. He's the guy fighting with an internet troll who clearly probably hasn't even surfed in five years, claiming that he could get barreled better than Caroline Marks at Chopu, and Kelly's doing battle with him. It's hilarious. So the update is the oh, there's an update. The Blacks BSN <laughs> is it Black Basin season? Black it's Black Blacks, season. I think it's Blacks Blacks season at the end. But what's the no? BSN? It's Blacks BSN SN. So right. Blacks so, BSN. What's BSN? 
Blacks. Blacks Basin BSN. season. Blacks. I don't know. I don't know. Black season. Black season said, responding to Kelly's five thousand dollar bet. Why you lying, bro, bro? We all know you spent all your money on that wave pool. You don't have the cash to spend like that. To which Kelly hit back. It's lying, and if you lose, it doesn't matter whether I have the money. I will then. Plenty of turns online. Let's make you famous. Are you kidding me? <laughs> this Did you just make that up? No. Oh my gosh. Am I the only one on the side of the internet troll in this scenario? Read the internet trolls comeback. Again? The yeah, same yeah, yeah. His comeback to Kelly yeah. was, Why you lying, bro, bro? We all know you spent all your money on that wave pool. You don't have the cash to spend like that. That is amazing. He's clearly just having fun. And Why Kelly, you lying, Kelly bro, said, bro? It is lying, and if you lose, it doesn't matter whether I have the money or not. Dude, this troll is my Duke of the Week. <laughs> this is hilarious to me. Why you lying, bro, bro? You spent all your money on a wave pool. That's hilarious. It does sound like an does, episode of, uh, I don't know. Some is few, Kelly in on the joke, too? Does Kelly? Kelly I, can't possibly think know. this is fun. I don't know. Amazing. I think Kelly's back right. in Carolyn Marks, which I'm okay well, with Well, of that. course, dude. Did you see the barrel? Yes. It's legit. Yeah, no, no, it is. It is a legit barrel. For sure. And it's, by the way, it's not um, the biggest chokes we've ever seen, like the guy points out, the troll points out, but it's a gnarly, like that wave is gnarly at six foot. Like it is, she could get hurt. Kiala Kenley got her face ripped off at eight foot. Was that cloud break though? Or was it uh, chokes? No, no, it was chokes. It was chokes, yeah. yeah. And it was not a big day. It was a six foot, six oh, to yeah. eight foot day, and she got her face ripped off. I might argue it's gnarlier when it's that big. Could be, yeah. there's not as much water over the reef, but who knows? And not, Caroline, I've never surfed there. Caroline threaded that. I watched that wave at night like five times while, like right before I went to bed, and then I saved it because I'm like, I want to watch this with fresh eyes in the morning to see if it's as gnarly as I think it is. And it was. I watched it a bunch of times. It's crazy. Yeah. So first of all, I love that Caroline is out there free surfing and putting in the hard yards yeah. because that's, I'll be perfectly honest, there's a valid critique about the women's surfing. I don't see them doing that in the off season as much as we see a lot of the men's side doing it. And I think that their surfing would improve, they as a whole would improve leaps and bounds. Show up at pipe in the off season. Show up at and and really start treating this like. And I know that Chopes isn't on the women's tour right now, but it might be in three years, and it will be in the Olympics. By the way, the twenty twenty four Olympics. Good point. That's a good from point. France. They're going to yeah. be holding it at Chopu. So start figuring it that's out. That's going to be gnarly. It takes this much time to get good at spots like that. So I love that Caroline is actually putting in the hard yards and doing it. Um, I would too argue that it's easier to put in the hard yards at Chopu than it is at Pipeline. I agree. Pipeline's a nightmare. Totally. Like, for in terms Chope, of pecking order. Yeah, pecking and, order. Yeah, exactly. Chopes. I mean, you can show up at Chopes and there'll be three people in the wall. Yeah, totally. So bravo to Caroline. Um, I can't believe that Stab made an article about the internet troll thing. That's kind of funny to me. Um, yeah, it's bordering on something like you might see on Beach Grid almost. It's it is. Like, it's like an article about... Yeah. Uh, well, so they're, I guess, like you said, they're ta- saying, oh, Kelly. The whole thing was Kelly story puts is up Kelly five puts up grand. Five grand. Yeah. But Kelly's been arguing with internet trolls forever, and that is worth discussing. That's very, very funny to me. Yeah. Um, but the other one detail about the stab that I stabs spin on this is including 
the amount of likes that their comment got versus the other guy's comment got. That yeah. part to me is... It's a little teenage. It's a little... It, like the currency now... We all know that the currency is likes, but I guess using that to... I don't know. I think I know that, Using mean. that to be like... Truth Truth is it's mandated... It's kind of chest pounding for no reason. Truth is mandated by number of likes now. Yeah, that's weird. That's weird. It's not just a popularity contest. It's this is saying that we are right. Right, exactly. This is saying that our our version of who's right and wrong here is validated by the number of likes. That's problematic. That's symptomatic. That's gonna that plays true in our election process at this point in our existence, which is kind of sickening. Exactly. You know. So the fact that Stab is using that as their currency is. Worth noting. I mean, not that Stab's the only person doing it. We're all kind of living in this world now, but it is interesting. I had this weird thought of that, that I was driving up here and I was listening to the radio about the politics that's going on right now. And I was like, okay, what's the like really crazy scenario in my own little editorial sort of like fictionary, fiction thought process is Bernie Sanders gets elected in the process of all of that, Don Trump Jr. gets put in jail for something that he did wrong, whatever it is. Just like Hitler was put in jail. Now, Don Jr. has this martyrdom around him and this nationalistic, populist, populist type of vibe that he's just like taking control of. He gets out of jail. He's pardoned by some president or something. President Camacho. Or he gets out of jail because he does his four years or whatever. And he has this following. Just like Hitler, he becomes the authoritarian president of the United States. And he tears down a lot of the the guardrails that are already being eroded. And he's he's like, it's it's like 2075. Terminator 2. No, 2055. And he's like, it's hell. Yeah, it's like the worst case scenario. Right. So that's where my fiction took me. This was interesting. Yeah. Wow. And that, that, we morning? shouldn't talk politics on the show. Um, that wasn't politics. I know. It was just uh, me thinking out loud. Like, what? What is the worst case scenario? Because my feeling is, is like all these things are reactions. It's like, okay, you want an equal and opposite reaction to Donald Trump? Here you go, Bernie Sanders. Right. So what's the equal and opposite reaction to Bernie Sanders? It's Don Jr. Right. And what's the equal and opposite reaction it, to Don Jr.? It's like a cyborg or something. Yeah. No, it's like, uh, yeah. There it, will it never would, be a moderate would, a moderate politician in charge of our country again. I think it's always going to be a reaction. Well, the I hate to tell you, but this has been seen before. Uh, Hitler. Pride comes before the fall. We've seen the Aztecs disappear. We've seen Rome disappear. Oh, We've yeah. seen all of these great powers. And it is this. It is hubris. And it is just pride and complete abandoning of rational thought and moderate thought and um, uh, accepting fault and apologizing and, you know, sympathizing. So it's, I have another opinion. Okay. That, I love yours. That your might. Opinions. It's probably going to throw the listeners, and they're either going to turn it off or they're going to write us. But so I was, 
I've always been like, yeah, climate change is a thing, you know, like, but I've never really dug into the science of it. I've always just kind of gone along with group think that there's all these scientists and everybody and, you know, Yvonne Chouinard and all everybody, everybody's kind of in agreement that climate change is a thing. And of course, then on the sort of the wacko side of the equation, there's people who are like, what do you mean? It's why is it snowing in Idaho if there's climate change? Like they don't understand the difference between climate and weather, you know? <laughs> And you could throw Trump into that equation. He's one of those guys that'll be like, Whoa. but what really, so I've always just, I've never done the deep dive. I've always just agreed with conventional wisdom that, look, everybody says it's a thing. It must be a thing. I, I believe him. I'm, I'm in, I'm all in, you know? And then I was sent something by a dear, dear friend of mine who's a big hitter um, in on Wall Street. He's, he's a major player. He's very wealthy. He's very knows his stuff, knows the money, knows Wall Street, knows the markets, right? And it was this analysis from J.P. Morgan that they send out to all of the brokerage firms. They, J.P. Morgan, like all of these places, these central bankers, they all have like super uber smart, like New York University, NYU MBAs that come out and, and they do these reports, right? So J.P. Morgan did a report on climate change and how it's going to affect money basically right yeah and so i immediately went okay if there ever was any doubt along in anyone's mind when jp morgan is putting out a 30 page pdf on climate change and how it's going to affect the markets guess what climate change is real like when wall street acknowledges it it is friggin' on like you know i mean if there was ever any doubt there's no way jp morgan's putting out this thing and it was a really interesting piece and it basically was saying the human like like what the way these guys they look at everything black and white and they're like worst case scenario human race gets wiped out by the year 2170 best case scenario we don't really know we're not sure what carbon monoxide is going to have to do with the but right now as we see it you know the temperature of the earth is going up one cent one degree celsius every year and a half and at the rate that we're putting co2 into the like it was an insane breakdown yeah was it lawrence fink it was jp morgan right I don't think so. Oh, okay. I think it was just a bunch of and now okay. like a bunch of super smart twenty five year old analysts that are like trying to get their foot in the door, and some guys like, dude, take six months and write us a killer report that we can send everybody. But it was fascinating. I mean, like deep dive stuff, like graphs and shit. I didn't even understand. But my right. point is the the point of this is that Wall Street is acknowledging climate change. That's yeah, yeah, all yeah. you need to know if you were never a believer, because they're not risking their portfolio on anything but the fucking truth. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, Lawrence Fink, who's like the... I know who he is. Yeah. Manages the largest um, fund. In, fu largest, don't look, because no. it's better that we don't get distracted. Okay. But manages the largest uh, fund in the world. I think it's like $13 trillion worth of yeah. money in this thing. So he, in his shareholder um, you know, letter that he sends out, stated basically the same thing. And so now all these corporations are putting in to place initiatives to reverse their either neutralize their carbon footprint or reverse it but as you listen to it or dig into it honestly it's mainly just for optics it's mainly just for pr spin like delta put out a statement saying that they're going to go carbon neutral by whatever the year is and that means a 10 billion dollar investment over the or no i think it's a whatever over the course of 10 years a certain billions of dollars that they're going to do to and what that means is they're still emitting tons of carbon. 
Like their jets are still flying, jumbo jets are flying around the world at the same rate, hopefully increasing their rate if they want to see profits increase, but they're going to plant more trees. So like the trees that, you know, put out oxygen are going to, you know, so, and then. I don't think it's optics. I, I, I it, think. Dude, that- it's mainly optics. So what you, what you find out when you look into this is Delta, Amazon, all of these companies, as big as you and I think they are, they are nothing compared to China. And what China's doing? China right. is no, I, I agree. is doing way more China harm. China and India are doing a lot of harm than America and the EU and South yeah. America all combined. So Amazon to say those things is strictly to make you and I feel good about ourselves that we're having three packages a week show up on our door wrapped in plastic and cardboard from a gas vehicle that dropped them off. That we see, you know, like that's all that it is. It doesn't I think affect it's a little their bottom bit, line. I agree with the, a lot of it is optics. I will agree with that. But I do think that at the end of the day, it is about shareholders and making profit and making everybody happy regarding profits. And if you want that to last long term, I think these companies are the long term view is we've got to change this or we won't even be around. So what good is our money if we're all dead? So, okay. So, like, I do are think they, they're, so they're reinvesting all of that profit sure. into... Look, I don't know what they're doing. I'm just saying I think, it's more, I think it's more than optics. I, I'm, I'm hopeful that it's more than optics. I, I think... I think we're being... I think their businesses are... Have, there's some good people that are trying to be leaders. Uh, show me one. I, I can't. I'm just... I'm being hopeful. Again, I, I'm being I hopeful. would like to think know. that that's true. I think they're... Even if they, even if Jeff Bezos reinvested all the profits into try, trying oh, to solve I, this, it wouldn't make that big of a difference on the global scale. And so I think governments like, have to solve this problem. Agree, I agree. agree. Ten million dollars by because China is like Bezos. Ten million dollars by Bezos or whatever he announced the other day is stu- it's stupid. It's like yeah. that's nothing. Like we need trillions of dollars and we need government institutions matter and we need government institutions to take the lead on that's why it's important that we be the leader on this and why did we pull out the paris accord completely agree to that i think so i'm going way down the wrong we got to stop real quick real quick real quick let me let me get this affects the oceans this is (laughs) absolutely spit it any way i want Um, no but i do i'm not I'm not um, nihilistic or <laughs> My next story is legal protection for Gold Coast Surfing Reserve. Hey, I think that these problems will be solved through technology, firstly. So put a Bezos, put an Elon Musk on ridding the ocean of plastic, and I think that that will solve it. I'm saying Amazon as an entity claiming that they're going to do something other than maybe turn all their cars into electric vehicles isn't necessarily going to do anything. I have, put a, that quiz. Money into I have solving. a quiz for you. Right. I need you to name the very famous actor who, on a devil-may-care whim, just happened to be in Bali in 1980 and decided to go. He doesn't surf. Bill Murray. Yes. Isn't that a great story? Yeah. So Bill Murray went to G-Land with Peter McCabe and Roy Russell in 1980 because he just happened to be at a restaurant in Cuda. Where did you see this? Did you see this where I saw this? This is a known story. I mean, I've seen footage. I mean, wasn't I heard it before too? I just thought it would be Sea of Darkness. Maybe there's footage of him there. Oh yeah, I think you're right. And I've seen the video, the photos of it have been floating around for a while. Yeah, then that's where I saw it. I I just saw it online somewhere. Um, It's good. It's a good story. Tell people. Well, so the story is, and as I continue, so Bill Murray was in Cuda in Bali in 1980, and Roy Russell. Well, I'm just going to read a quote. This is from Peter McCabe. We were at Poppy's restaurant in Cuda, Bali, about 1980, and Roy Russell, who knew who Bill Murray was from the show Saturday Night Live, 
just went up to him and said, are you Bill Murray? And Bill goes, yeah, yeah. So we were sitting there just smashing them drinks after dinner. Could have been Iraq for all I knew, which is a really strong local drink. And he was getting into it. So we just told him what we were doing. We're going to G-Land. Do you want to come? And the and fuck, he went with us and got his stuff and came with us on the bus. And Bill Murray went to G-Land in 1980. And that's where he learned to surf. Yeah, there's footage of him with a surfboard on the beach, like checking the waves after the surf. Um, Caddyshack. What I love is that Bill Murray still, you still hear stories like that about Bill Murray. He lives most of the year in Charleston, and I have a bunch of friends in Charleston. And everybody who lives in Charleston has a story about encountering Bill Murray. And it's hilarious stuff, like wandering into a house party. You've told me this story yeah. before. Wandering into a house party, hanging out with everybody, and everybody's like, what are you doing here? He's like, I don't know. I was walking by, and I heard you guys partying. Can I hang with you? And then staying and doing, as people are leaving, staying and doing the dishes. And then, <laughs> So Bill Murray's got his hands in the dishes. He's doing the dishes. And then eventually just like gives the hosts a hug and a kiss. Goodbye. And he's on his way. Doesn't leave his number. Doesn't try to maintain any contact. But just because it's almost like he realizes this will give these people the best story of their life. And that that means something. What well, a great way to live your life. Yeah. And he, you know, he doesn't have a cell phone. He doesn't have an agent. Doesn't have an agent. Doesn't have a cell phone. He's like, been in Hollywood for forty to, years. To get a hold of him is really you, you have to leave a message on his payphone or something. On his no, on his <laughs> on his uh, recorder at home, and then he'll come home from you know Bali where he's surfing or whatever. Check his messages, and he's like, "Oh, I, I'm down to do a Jim Jarmusch film. Like I'll call him <laughs> back, you know, or whatever." That's so great. Yeah, it really is great because I mean he's a guy who could have pursued a lot of different paths in Hollywood and made 10 times the amount of money that he's made, but he doesn't. He yeah. just lives a great life, has enough money, obviously, to yeah. not have to ever worry again. So it's he a great He enjoys story. the game of golf. He really does, yeah. And, and Slater has apparently developed a relationship with him. I, I bet Slater has that home number. I bet he does. A um, couple of Hurley updates, just so that we could track this story. We don't have to do a lot of talk on it, but Eli Hanneman and Carissa Moore have signed with the new owners at Blue Star. Like Blue Star, we thought was... De- demolishing the team which they did but they re-signed carissa and eli so that's an interesting strategy and that they're both hawaiians eli makes sense because um he could be the next john john so i think they're really putting their money on that potential return and carissa makes a lot of sense because she's going to represent hawaii in the olympics um not hawaii oh i'm sorry u.s the united states and then one other detail in regard to sponsors that is kind of big is Taj Burrow is off Billabong for the first time in 20 years and signed with his shoe sponsor, Globe, as a clothing ambassador. So Globe goes from the small sticker on his board representing shoes to now being the large sticker at the nose of the board and fully representing their apparel line. Hmm. All right. Um, Coronavirus. Great. I put in a call to our friend Dave Prodan. And did not hear back from him. But I'm like, dude, I'm on the road right now. I'm about to... Uh, Dave- on the drive up here? Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I, I wanted to at least reach out and go, dude, give me give me some insight. You know, like, even if it's the boilerplate WSL, which it probably would have been. You want insight into how they're going to protect the travelers? Well, are they? Like, like my... Like, it, it's, it's reaching a pandemic 
It's officially level. a pandemic. Right, where basically that word means that the, that the coronavirus is multiplying across multi-nation states. It's not it's, just a China thing or it's a multi- few nation states. It's, it's showing, showing up. up in these states unrelated to the initial origin right. source. Thank so you. when it pops up in Italy, they can't track that that came from China. It's right. like now actually existing in Italy remotely. Right. Um, so there's so eight, it's a 80, pandemic. 80, it's affecting Wall Street. Go ahead. I'm sorry. 80,000 yeah. known cases. Yeah. I think 26. It's doubled in the last five days or something. Outside of China. Right. In the last five days outside of China, it's doubled. So last time we spoke, I go, this, needs, deaths. this needs to be on their radar. I'm not sure if Eric or Dave listened to our last podcast, but I thought I'd shoot them a call and go, hey, what's... What's going on? What's Protocol. the official word? What's what's the logistics? What are the plans? Even if it's the boilerplate, we're serious about this. We're looking into it. We have contingency plans in place, blah, blah, blah. But I, I did not hear back from Dave, and that is understandable. I only gave him 45 minutes to get back to me. But um, I think it's time for all of these uh, international organizations, whether it be sporting or whatever, even the, the big tech, everybody needs to kind of like be going – what? How do we mitigate this? What is the contingency? What are our logistics? And regarding the WSL, what does that mean? What does that mean for um, events in Asia, even if they're QS events or longboard events or whatever? What does it mean for the CT in Australia and the CT as it moves through, you know, the Pacific Islands and wherever it goes? Right. So I'm interested in in what is the take on that, and I do feel like we're getting to that place where the WSL and other agencies need to at least put out a thing like, hey, we're waving the flag. We understand it. We're talking about it. We're thinking it through. We, we're going to have a plan in place. Bear with us. You know when they'll respond? No. When? This relates to your uh, climate change thought. Oh. They'll respond as soon as it hits the bottom line. As soon as it affects their revenue. Right. That's when we'll see a response. Right. Coronavirus wipes out a population is the mini story. The main story is it affected the economy by doing so. Rural, right. And, the, and that's kind of where we're at now. So you, yeah. that's why I ring it up. Like it's it, the Dow took a thousand points off yesterday. Yeah, exactly. So you would think that now's the time for everyone to kind of go, oh, shit. You know, like now we're right. It's sad. It. It's, it's, it's well, a human story. There's a human toll here. But, but it, we don't it, care. Uh, like I said, last time you brought this up, I, I embarrassingly admitted like, oh, I don't know. This your feels, prediction was this feels distant from me. I don't know. Like I know people are suffering on a human level in China, but I don't know. It. I've heard this story in the news every five years, whether it's H one N one or SARS or whatever, and it doesn't affect me in any way whatsoever. So I have a hard time empathizing. I know this is very crass, but I have a hard time hip- sympathizing or <laughs> empathizing. Rather makes sense coming from you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Except for. Uh, if it hurts the economy, now my 401k is affected right. and I'm listening. Perfect. I'm all ears. Yeah. Solve this. Yeah. You know? It, you know, it's funny. I was surfing at Swami's the other day and I've got a couple of Italian friends and one of them just flew in from Italy, Pierre Giorgio of Zio Baffa Wines. And I was like, cool, blah, blah, blah. And he immediately went, dude, we can't go home. Like, I don't think we're going home because of the, the is coronavirus. He, is he in Northern Italy? I don't know where he's from. That's where it is. Yeah, it's in, in Milan, like outside right? Milan. Yeah. yeah. There's like a hundred infected. And if that came from ski slopes of France. I don't know. Right. So what's crazy about that one is the death rate 
in Wuhan is low. It's like 2.5%. But there's eight but there's eight people that died in Italy. So if 100 are infected in Italy and eight people died, that's 8%. That's a significantly higher death rate right. in Italy than it is in China. And I mean, 2.5% when you're talking about millions of people is quite a lot of people. But we're not talking about millions. We're talking about 80,000. Yeah. All right. Well, so, anyway. At any rate. Coronavirus, WSL, what's going on? Yep. And Olympics, what's going on? Uh, it'll all be solved by the weekend. We hope so. I certainly hope so. Um, I, I got really a, hope so. I got a duke and a kook for you. Okay. Do you? You got um, anything? No. I mean, I have a musty moment, which is the Billy Kemper thing. Oh, okay. But... Duke and a kook. I'm well, my musty moment it. is Noah Waggy. I think it's Noah Weirich out of the central to north California. Um, he's got a new film called Elude by Perry Gershaw. Have you seen this? It's a 30-minute edit. <laughs> no. I love that you're laughing. Your whole life has been centered around watching surf visuals. <laughs> and now I offer you on a platter no, I, the greatest one that it. exists, I'm... and you couldn't care any less. It's funny because these guys here at Shack and around – the surf world have been sending me emails going, give me your five best oh, yeah. surf movies, right? And I'm sure that you got one, right? So my five best surf movies were like, they were they were Endless Summer, uh, Surf's Up. Um, surf's Up? Yeah, Surf's Up. Are you kidding me? No. Or is that the Disney film? Or the yes, film? Oh, it's the God. one with Chicken Joe, the greatest surfer of all time. Um, I think I included um, Five Summer Stories, of course, um, Free Ride, and I threw one other one in, but then I made it re- I realized one that needs to be in there is Ride the Wild Surf, which was of all the sort of campy beach blanket bingo '60s Hollywood surf movies, actually kind of got it right and tried to look at things through the eyes of surfers, you know. And um, that's a good movie, Ride the Wild Surf, in that genre of surf campy beach blanket bingo surf movies. That's the best one. I don't know if you've ever seen it. No. I know what you're talking about, but I haven't. It follows seen it. big waves riding in Hawaii and Waimea Bay, and a group of guys could fly to Hawaii to try to conquer Waimea Bay, and it includes all this great footage of Dora and Greg Knoll. And you, I've got a new, uh, or certainly a revived, interest in seeing old footage like that. When I watch old footage now, I'm watching it with a lot sharper eye than I think I used to. I think it fell on deaf ears for a long time. Yeah. When I, for me, but when I see those boards and the way that they're maneuvering those boards. It relates to the boards are so archaic and not functional, but there's fundamentals in them that I can like translate into my surfing now in a very, very strange way. And I'm getting a lot of it from Warshaw's EOS newsletter that he puts out every Sunday night. Yeah. I'll wait till Monday. And there's often links to video footage in it. Like, first of all, it's a history lesson that I appreciate. But then I'll click on the links. And this last week was Jeff Hackman winning the Duke contest in the late 60s. How great is that footage? It's killer. The footage is so good. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I just surfed these waves recently. So, like, the wave's doing the exact same thing it's doing today. But the board that he's riding is very different. Where is he taking off? Oh, God, that board lets him take off in a way better spot than my board was letting me take off. But, oh, he's doing it leashless? What the heck? What is he thinking? And if and then you see people wipe out in the swim they got to do at sunset. You're like, that's crazy, you know? Yeah. So all of those things and, and like, realizing the – athleticism that those guys needed back in that 17 day. 17 years old. So, and he was he 17. Won the first Duke. Crazy. 1965. Crazy. So then you're, I'm thinking like, okay, the bravado or the uh, confidence that he is showcasing while they're interviewing him, um, 
what does a 16 year old look like when they get interviewed now? And they're, they're now talking about doing air reverses or whatever. So it's a little bit different, but it's kind of the same. It reminds me a lot like the well, quiet... He was talking about doing cutting edge maneuvers. He was talking right. about a cheater five. I know. Like I'm going to try to do a cheater five, which is a cutting edge maneuver in 1965 right. at 10 foot sunset. So uh, you're exactly right. And I'm watching him and I can almost transpose Jack Robinson over him and go, this is very, very similar. There's a quiet confidence in both these. And I totally. use Jack Robinson That's as a, a perfect example. example. That is yeah. a perfect example. Jack Robinson just like standing there, like with a look, you know, in his behind his eyes, he's going to execute everything that he's talking about. He knows exactly how to do it. And he's going to go out there and nobody's going to get in his way, but he's not being verbose. He's no. not using too many words. He's not uh, flexing. He's just, he knows he's going to do it. Yeah. There's like this quiet confidence and then you go out and they do it. And you're like, yeah. holy crap, this 17-year-old, there's Hawaiian surfers who have been surfing this way for 30 years that should trounce him, but... Well, Jeff Hackman, you mean Jack or Jeff Hackman? Both. Because, well, both those guys put it... Jeff Hackman had been surfing since he was like 12 years old. But he was 17 at that time. Yeah, I know, but and my Jack, point is, is that he's got five years in already. Like Same he, with Jack. That's my point, yeah. right? yeah. So five years compared to 30, though, is the point that I was making. But anyways, my five... So side note, sign up for EOS of Surfing, Encyclopedia of Surfing, EOS.surf. Um, it's three bucks a month, and it's worth it as an archive just to support the archive and be able to have access to stuff when you want to look it up. But that weekly email, I'm digging it. Oh, yeah. Sunday Sunday morning, whatever. Sunday evening. Joint. But, Sunday joint. Yeah, Sunday joint. Let me ask you this. Now, we've spoken about Sunday joint. Jeff Hackman, Sunset Beach, Jack Robinson, and and you're telling me that Noah's clip is your. <laughs> put in, let's just put that in context. The answer is yes. Okay. The answer I can't is wait yes. to see it. I'm okay. looking forward to it because I know the guy serves red hot. I know you won't watch it because it is 30 <laughs> minutes, but good. I'm glad for you that you can't wait. Um, you want to hear my five films? They're way, way, way different than yours. Yes, please give me your. Five I tried films. to give five that like actually meant something to me like i remember surfing every single day after watching this film because i wanted to do what these guys are doing no madam shut up <laughs> one of them you can't even find anymore because i've looked it for it it was i have the vhs still but um very first surf film that i actually paid money for that yeah. like i watched over and over and over again was yeah. from tony roberts when he was working for o'neill up in santa cruz with all of that crew yeah. um from the mid 90s it's called jacked Right. And they do a world tour. They like it's not just all based in Santa Cruz. It's all the Santa Cruz guys, and it starts there. Yeah. But then they go around the world, and they surf J Bay with like Todd Chesser and Anthony Rufo, Barney. Um, yeah, Barney Flea, Rat Boy, Rapogel, Galley. Number my second one, Galley. Right, Doesn't he have another Stone? Name? Thank you. Uh, my other, my second close right after that. What's really going wrong yeah. from Lost? Yeah, highly influential. I wanted to surf like Chris Ward more than I wanted anything in life for that next three years. Yeah, Thicker Than Water by Jack Malo or Jack Johnson and Chris Malloy, mm -hmm. pivotal film in two thousand. Mm -hmm. Phenomenal soundtrack. Also became kind of a launching point for Jack Johnson. Um, Let's Be Frank by Peter Hamlin in two thousand sixteen. Cinematically phenomenal. Not great surfing, but cinematically a turning point for surf films. Scott never even saw it. He's shrugging his shoulders. <laughs> 2019, Jack Coleman. Zone a turning frequency. point? I mean, I'm sure it's a great movie, but it's a turning point? Cinematically. Why? In, in terms of filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah, well, it is. That's what cinematic would be. Watch it. 
Okay. Watch it. Uh, <laughs> Zone Frequency by Jack Coleman last year, I felt like did the same thing. You're allowed five. You've got that's your, five. That's like ten. Jacked, what's really going wrong? Thicker than water. Let's be frank. Zone Frequency. That's five. Zone Frequency was this fusion of Jack Coleman hitting his zenith as a filmmaker, partnered with guys writing really interesting equipment in the exact right conditions for the day. So everything from Birch writing his ASIMs to uh, Bryce Young translating that into like super high performance surfing, into guys riding logs, into Gavin Beshin at Pipeline. Like there's a bunch of different boards, all boards that you and I are super interested in that we could relate to, but riding them in the exact right conditions. Derek Disney riding double overhead, G-Land on a fish, stuff, or desert, whatever. I think it's awesome. Gavin Beshin has the most underrated style. I agree. Um, okay, but in that same email or a separate email, we also got, it asked us to list the five most influential cinematographers. Did you get that one? No. So that was an interesting one, right? Because I felt like some people needed to get some credit that didn't get credit. Like I even sent... Perfect. I sent something to the guys. I'm like, please, let's not include the, let's not include Bud Brown again and Bruce Brown. And like those guys have gotten their due. Like let's focus on contemporary, relative contemporaries. And then I, I put Jack McCoy, which is kind of like not a contemporary, but Jack McCoy. So I put, I, I don't have my list exactly, but I, I put Jack McCoy. I put Taylor Steele. I put Sonny Miller. Great call. And I put one that a guy who I don't think gets, that deserves way more credit than he gets is Larry Haynes. I think Larry Haynes is one of the top cinematographers. I stayed with him in Sunset he's when just, I was in Hawaii. I he's stayed the most stoked room. guy ever. Yeah. And I hope Larry Haynes makes that list. And then I put some other somebody else who deserves it. I can't remember. Yeah. But my point is, is that Larry Haynes needs his day in the... He's just like the working man's working man photographer guy. He's Still always working. stoked. I know. He's probably working so right now. I he's probably cleaning his housing right so now. So two weeks ago, I stayed at his house. And... Um, who knew that I was going to bring I know, up Larry Haynes. I know. That's crazy. Yeah. And yeah, he had just gotten back from Jaws shooting the thing that the WSL put out about a free surf session that went down there. So he's still... He deserves a walk of star on, in hunting. Yeah. He deserves one of those, you know, walk of fame, hall of fame, blah, blah, blah. He deserves that. He deserves some kudos. This yeah. guy is the working man's working man, just hardcore. Still at it. Totally. Yeah. Super nice. Super good guy. Great host. Always a smile. Great uh, hands. Great dog, too. Sonny Miller. Luna. Luna. The dog Luna is great. Sonny had a wonderful little dog. Yeah. Um, good call, Scott. Uh, so anyways, Noah Waggy, that film elude, I'll post it on spitpodcast.com. Here's what's funny to me is like, you're right. I'm not shaming you by saying that you're not interested. Nobody, interested. nobody, no, but nobody's really interested anymore. And three years ago, you and I would have the conversation of going, are long edits, this is a 30 minute edit, are long edits even worth doing? This took two years of comp- compiling footage, holding it back, waiting to put it out into a film plus all the expense involved in that. And at that time, my question was, uh, the guys who are doing those edits are sponsored. And so is their brand that pays them money going to see a return on this edit like it did when Josh Kerr put out his film for Rusty back in the day or Taylor Knox put out Ark or Dane Reynolds put out whatever he put out at the time. So is their sponsor going to see a return on that? That was the question three years ago. That question isn't even relevant anymore because the guy doesn't even have a sponsor. He's literally doing it by himself 
to try to make a blip on the radar for who knows what because there's nothing to buy and sell anymore. It's really interesting. The next great surf film will not have any wave riding in it. The next long form surf film will not be about riding waves. What will it, it be will about? Be a, well, it'll be a, a, a story about probably somebody's personal conflict. And I don't know. It might be. It'll be about it might Dick Metz. might be about Sonny Garcia. They'll show riding waves in there. Well, there'll be riding waves. But my if point, they show Dick Metz, Dick Metz could be the greatest surf film of all time that doesn't show a single wave ridden. That, that's my point. My point is, is that we are overdone with guys riding waves. By the way, my must-see moment, uh, or a film that you guys, should, something you guys should check out, we should put on the website for this episode, is Brett Barley's Outer Banks footage. from. So the Outer Banks has been firing last week. It was bombing. And Brett Barley put out a cool, you know, he's, he's sort of like the master of the art right now. And he put out a cool little thing where he does this thing where he's like, get you fired up. You know, he, he does, he's got a little formula that he uses. So check that out. Okay. Outer Banks, you know, barrel fast and like super butt cold water. Yeah. You know. Uh, well, the Noah Weyrich one is well worth watching. His surfing is really, really good. It's relatable to me. I love seeing California, especially like Central Coast, because that's my kind of awareness of surfing. And that's how I grew up and where I grew up. So seeing somebody put in the work to get to those spots on the right days and do the cold water and all that sort of stuff. And he's riding like novelty wedges and interesting waves. Um, it's a great, great 30 minutes of your time. My kook be- ended up becoming not my kook. So I wrote this as my kook midweek and the story has developed since then. But there's a nine-year-old um, partially half Aboriginal kid in Australia who is a little person, I think is the correct term. Uh, he has dwarfism. His name's Quaden Bales, who got bullied on the internet, or got bullied at school, and his mom filmed his reaction, like coming home and crying and looking at the camera and like saying, I want to die. Like the bullying is that bad because partially racial, partially because of his dwarfism, got bullied at school. And the internet really band together to who support him. him. Did Trump bully him? It was probably Trump related, <laughs> but the he's Australian. So the internet, largely the Australian surf community, Jack Freestone himself was like, we need to get this kid and his family an invite to the snapper event. Like, that's cool. Come with me. And like um, Hugh Jackman vote, uh, spoke about it. American actor, uh, dwarf Brad Williams did a oh, GoFundMe and got $300,000 donated That's to send to this killer. kid. Well, the reason why Quaylen became my dupe, my kook midweek was it turns out he's not a nine-year-old kid getting bullied. He's an 18-year-old semi-comedian slash whatever who was conning the internet. <laughs> so that became the maybe, story. Maybe he's your duke, though. That's kind of intriguing no, no, no. in a weird way. So the story developed further. So after the surf world kind of chimed in on it, I was like, oh, okay, this is now relevant to our show. You know, let's make him the Duke. But then the spin about him conning the internet out of all this money and attention, I go, oh, no, now he's the kook. Perfect. He still fits in the show. Well, it turns out that story wasn't even true. And that his 18-year-old cousin is the one who, like the internet found the 18-year-old cousin's photos online and go, oh, he's this internet prankster. 
This is the nine-year-old. No, it turns out the nine-year-old is still the nine-year-old. That's his cousin that the internet mistakenly thought was him. Oh. So the, the nine the internet botched it shockingly. The internet was wrong. So the internet <laughs> thought that they sleuthed around enough to uncover that his true identity is this jokester who conned us. Uh, no, no, no. He's still a nine-year-old who's getting bullied at school. Uh, he has an 18-year-old cousin who looks very similar to him. But didn't do anything wrong. Didn't just do anything the wrong. The internet just found him and went, look at it. It's him. It's yeah. bullshit. Yeah, because they, they on that gotcha. 18-year-old's Instagram, he's like hanging out in the bar, drinking. He's like holding money up at some point. And so the internet ran with that. It's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. So anyways, okay. all um, not that interesting. I don't know why I brought it up. Uh, my Duke is... Surfers for banishing Equinor from the Great Australian Bite, um, but more importantly for Sean Doherty for organizing it into a cohesive narrative and even a dialogue. We've been following this story for probably two years now. Equinor, this Norwegian oil company, been trying to drill for oil, exploratory drilling in the Great Australian Bite. And after a long public battle to save the bite from the oil exploration, it appears that the energy and passion have paid off. Equinor announced Tuesday that they will be discontinuing their $200 million plans to search for oil in the turbulent southern waters. Uh, Equinor ceded that their plans were not commercially competitive. In other words, they couldn't make the numbers work. It's also worth noting that attempts from other oil companies in this region have met similar fate. BP abandoned plans to drill in the bite in 2016. Chevron abandoned their plans in 2017. Round of applause. However, Scott, not to be cynical, uh, do you think surfers had anything to do with this? Yeah. E- well, Equinor said their plans are not financially viable. That's why they're pulling out. I don't know. I can't. Obviously, my gut feeling is I'd like to think they did. I'd I like, like to think Sean. I, I, I mean, they certainly raised awareness at the very least. Now, is that the reason question. Equinor pulled out? I don't know. I mean, they're saying it's a financially inviable, unviable situation. I don't know, but I like the idea of surfers rallying around an environmental cause and, and getting into it. I like the idea of Amazon going carbon neutral too. I don't know that it matters. <laughs> I like the idea. All the images of the surfer protests are very compelling and it makes us feel like we could pat ourselves on the back. Yeah. I wonder at the end of the day, does awareness campaign do anything? Yeah. I'd like to think so because I want to feel like we're empowered. But at the end of the day, the Australian government agreed and approved in december 2019 so two months ago they approved the drilling so all of that protesting did nothing for the government's sway the government still approved the drilling and then a couple months later equinor says this isn't financially viable we're we're pulling out i'm wondering if we're all just splashing water and patting ourselves on the back yeah i don't know and doesn't equinor just go to a different country that doesn't have all of the attention and just drill there they're still gonna get their oil right I don't know. I mean, I need oil. You need oil. You know, we need oil. I drive a, I drive a hybrid, so I don't need as much oil as you do. Oh, but, my Lord. Uh, I don't know why I'm so cynical today. Yeah, why, why do you hate oil? Why do I hate awareness? <laughs> okay, well, it's been a great show. Thanks. Until next time, audio, audio, <laughs> until next time, adios and aloha. Well, come on, all of you big strong men. Uncle Sam needs your help again. Got himself in a terrible jam. Way down yonder in Vietnam. Put down your books and pick up a gun. We're gonna have a whole lot of fun. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five.
Street, don't be slow. I'm man, this is war, a go-go. There's plenty good money to be made. Supply in the army with the tools of the trade. Just open pray that if they drop the bomb, we're dropping on a Viet Cong. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven. Open up the pearly gates. Well, ain't no time to wonder why. We'll be all gonna die. Now come on, generals, let's move fast. Your big chance is here at last. Now you can go out and get those reds, cause the only good commie is one that's dead. And you know that peace can only be one when you've blown them all the kingdom come. Sing it! One, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, don't get down. Louder! Stop the war if you can't sing any better than that. There's about 300,000 of you fuckers out there. I want you to start singing. Come on. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven. Open up the pearly gates. Well, I ain't no time to wonder why. Now come on, mothers, about the land. Back your boys off to Vietnam. Don't hesitate, the second sun's off before it's too late. Be the first one on your block, now you're walking home in the docks. All right! One, two, three, what are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven, one, two, three. Well, I ain't no time to walk away. What are you all going to die? All right! Ladies and gentlemen.